Well, today's speaker is one that you, 99% of you, are going to be familiar with. And he is our pastor emeritus here at Allegheny Center Alliance Church. His name is Pastor Rock Dilliman. And for those who may be fairly new, I want to make sure you recognize that Pastor Rock pastored this church here at ACAC for 36 years. And it was my privilege to follow him as he retired in October of the year 2020. And it is a joy to have him back. And I am so grateful. I sound like a broken record, but it is truly coming from the bottom of my heart. His friendship, his wisdom, his availability to always be of counsel to me. And I will forever be grateful for the way in which God used him and Karen and their family to lead this church for so many years. And it's an honor that he is Pastor Emeritus and bringing the Word of God to us today here at ACAC. Well, after that introduction, after that kind introduction, I can hardly wait to hear myself speak. <laughs> like many of you who are 60 and older, I vividly remember the moment I learned of President John F. Kennedy's assassination. I was in a ninth grade classroom in Butler Junior High School. I can still remember the classroom and the speaker on the wall from which I was learning the tragic news. But something I didn't learn until recently was the fact that tragedy could have been avoided. America's ambassador to the United Nations at that time was Adlai Stevenson. And Stevenson had visited Dallas just a few weeks prior to President Kennedy's scheduled visit. And there he was met by extreme right-wing nationalists who believed the United Nations was a communist organization intent upon destroying their freedom. And as the ambassador attempted to speak, they shouted over him, they interrupted his speech, they called him names. And then as he attempted to leave and make his way to his automobile, they spit on him. Some physically assaulted him. And tragically, while this was unfolding, there were some in the crowd heard singing onward Christian soldiers. Now, upon his return to Washington, Stevenson warned President Kennedy, I don't think it's wise for you to go to Dallas. I think it'll be too dangerous. But Texas was a key battleground state in the upcoming election. So Kennedy ignored the warning. And the rest, as they say, is history. Now, I enjoy reading history. That's my favorite reading. And history records countless disasters that could have been avoided had a warning, or in some cases, multiple warnings, been taken seriously. And Scripture does the same thing. It records many a disaster that could have been avoided had God's repeated warnings through prophets and apostles been heeded. And today I want to consider one, just one of those warnings. This one was articulated by Jesus himself, and he subsequently reinforced it. 
And it's one of Jesus' warnings that's recorded in all three of what we call the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I want to read Luke's recording of it. It's found in Luke 12:1. Jesus began saying to his disciples, first of all, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Now, one would think a warning from Jesus, one that gets repeated, would capture our attention. But sadly, that's hardly the case. In my 45 years of pastoral ministry and study, I rarely heard this warning referenced by others. I rarely heard it taught or explained. And I suspect if you ask many Christians in our nation, what is the leaven of the Pharisees, they'd be hard-pressed to give you an answer. They might echo Jesus' words, hypocrisy, but Jesus wasn't defining the leaven of the Pharisees. He was saying those who practice it end up being hypocritical. But what was it? If you don't understand a warning, how can you possibly heed it and take it seriously? So as we consider it today, I've titled my teaching, The Neglected Warning. Let's look to the Lord together in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege of once again breaking your word to the church family I love. Father, today, as always, I am totally incapable. Years of practice mean nothing. It's only the Holy Spirit that can empower the teaching and preaching of your word. So as always, I ask for a fresh infilling so that the words of my mouth and the meditations and responses of our hearts would be appropriate. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. And you should be remember this. As we listen for God's voice together, may the Lord be with you. You remember. To understand any biblical warning, you have to be aware of its context. In this case, when did Jesus say it? To whom was he speaking? What was he referring to, and why did he find the warning necessary? Now, we know when the warning was sounded. It was a time of intense political, social, and spiritual unrest in Israel. The Jewish people were dog-tired of Roman occupation. And in many of their hearts, the unholy trinity of anger, resentment, and Jewish nationalism was at a fever pitch. The people longed for a Messiah who would crush their political enemies and restore Israel to its perceived former greatness. Some within the nation longed for deliverance. Deliverance from corrupt, compromised religion. Some longed for a renewal of true righteousness. But the guardians of the prevailing corrupted religious system weren't numbered among those longing for renewal. They saw no need of change, and so they resisted Jesus at every turn, and their opposition was intensifying. Now, we know who Jesus was addressing. It's right there in the text. He was speaking to his disciples, first of all, the good guys, the guys who had left virtually everything and accepted great risk because they believed Jesus was the promised Messiah. 
guys who would ultimately lay down their lives for their confession of Jesus as Lord. And since Jesus doesn't warn his people of things that can't possibly happen, The fact Jesus said it to his disciples testifies that Jesus' followers, you and I, are not immune to the negative influence of his concern, to the subject of his warning. We can be compromised by the, quote, leaven of the Pharisees. Now, what was Jesus referring to with that rather odd-sounding description, leaven of the Pharisees? Well, his audience was familiar with both pieces. They were familiar with the Pharisees. They were familiar with leaven. They knew the Pharisees were an ultra-conservative religious sect within Judaism. And they knew that leaven, or what we more commonly call yeast, is a change agent used when making bread. And once it's infiltrated in the batter, it converts sugars to alcohol and carbon dioxide in a process we call fermentation, and it makes bread rise. Now, by combining those two things, Pharisees and leaven, Jesus was giving us insight into why he felt his warning was necessary. He was reminding us that spiritual thinking like that of the Pharisees will alter or change our devotion to God. It'll make it something other than what God intended, and it will set us on a collision course with God's heart and God's agenda. So, let's consider that religious sect known as the Pharisees. A young man desiring to be a Pharisee began scriptural memorization at age three. And he didn't begin with the 23rd Psalm or a passage from Isaiah or Genesis 1. He began with the book of Leviticus. You think back to when you were three. Imagine yourself memorizing Leviticus. We struggle with Leviticus at 33, 43, 53, 63. Imagine memorizing at age three. In his youth, a young man studying to be a Pharisee would lick honey from a scroll of the law to reinforce the reality that the Word of God is like honey to the soul. By age 18, he would have been expected to have memorized virtually the entire Old Testament, and rigorous, frequent examinations would ensure that he was taking that seriously. The Pharisees took both Scripture and separation from unbelieving society seriously. They wanted to ensure that God's written revelation would not be lost. They wouldn't even look at Gentile sports venues, bathhouses, restaurants, gathering places. They wouldn't eat Gentile food. They wouldn't read Gentile literature. When Gentiles were in the area, they would look away. And if the Gentiles were looking away, they would spit in their direction. And they were rather smug. They began every day thanking God that they were Jews and not Gentile dogs. Now, in their passion to preserve Scripture and obedience to Scripture, the Pharisees made a fatal mistake. They expanded the commands of God with hundreds, virtually thousands, of their own subjective man-made 
commands. These were meant to define obedience and help people obey. For example, they took the simple command to keep the Sabbath day and make it a day of rest rather than labor, and they expanded that with literally hundreds of laws defining what constitutes labor and what constitutes rest and how can you keep it holy. Now, they were well-intended, but they were tragically misguided. Their approach to devotion made obedience to God an impossible burden and a discouraging exercise rather than a liberating lifestyle. Jesus said as much. He said, you guys lay burdens on people that nobody can bear. And when you convert somebody, they're twice the son of hell that they were before you got to them. Worse, their approach corrupted their own hearts until the people who would not literally break a stick on the Sabbath for fear of offending God called for their promised Messiah to be broke upon a cross. Now, how does that happen with people like that? Well, Jesus' analogy offers us insight. When you add yeast or leaven to batter, you do it quietly. And then the yeast does its work quietly without fanfare. And the changes that it brings aren't immediately obvious or observable. They observe quietly over time. And the leaven of the Pharisees functions the same way. It introduces into our walk with God things that over time will change our devotion and put us in a place where we're resisting the very God we profess to be serving. Now, I want to highlight nine aspects of Pharisee leaven. You can excel. They're brief. I will finish right on time. I've already been warned. (laughs) And I'm going to highlight them in no particular order. Number one, the Pharisees fail to recognize when we add our own material, our own stuff to God's revelation, and then treat it as God's revelation, we eventually assign greater importance and loyalty to our additions than to God's revelation. We give priority to the stuff we add. Give it priority over the things God said. And it's inevitable. Why do I say that? Because any time you add something to God's revelation, whatever you add is an idol. And behind every idol, there are spiritual forces. And those spiritual forces are never content to share authority in your life. They want control. In addition, when we add our own stuff to God's revelation, we effectively divide our devotion between our stuff and God. And over time, divided devotion destroys discernment. We fail to see what's happening. We fail to grasp the changes. That's why divided devotion eventually becomes unified disobedience to God. You can't serve God and anything else because the else will eventually move into the first position. 
Second, the Pharisees assumed that much time and faith ensured their immunity to evil. It does not. I often quote the old evangelist Vance Havner who said, spiritual birthdays only tell us how long we've been on the road. They don't tell us how far we've traveled. Time alone doesn't ensure that you haven't taken a detour. Time alone doesn't ensure that you haven't been making the same mistakes over and over again. That's what was true of the Pharisees. They suffered from what somebody once referred to as hardening of the categories. They assumed they had it all figured out, and they felt no need of correction. But God reveals truth to the humble, not the self-assured. The humble keep their souls open to God's correction. They pray with David, Lord, search my heart. Show me if there's garbage in there. The self-assured, they just double down on their errors. They look for teachers and teaching and church assemblies that reinforce their idols, their desired interpretation of Scripture, their politics, their values, their lifestyle. They approach Scripture seeking an echo of their own heart rather than a revelation of God's heart. And a lot of people read Scripture seeking an echo. And it shouldn't surprise us, they find it. Third, the Pharisees assumed a knowledge of Scripture ensures a knowledge of God. And again, it does not. Jesus repeatedly blew that assumption out of the water. He said knowledge of the Word can actually function as a substitute for knowledge of God. The Pharisees could quote Scriptures about the devil. The Pharisees saw the devil in anyone and everyone outside of their little fraternity. But Jesus said the devil was their father. Remember, knowledge of Scripture only becomes knowledge of God when we apply it and obey it. It's important to get through the Bible, but it's more important to let the Bible get through you. Fourth, the Pharisees, this is a big one, externalized evil. They saw it as existing in others, not in themselves. So to their way of thinking, better days couldn't unfold until the evil others were either driven out, marginalized, or converted, though they really didn't concern themselves that much with conversion. In short, the Pharisees practiced what I like to call a spiritual form of tribalism. Now, you don't need me to tell you that tribalism is very much with us today in American culture, and we're reaping the results of that tragedy. Our culture has been severely tribalized. We tend to divide society into bad guys, good guys, and, of course, we're the latter. Then we see everything through that simplistic prism. The other side is always wrong and evil. We are always right and good. And what does that produce? Well, eventually, we see evil in others that don't exist, and we remain blind to evil in ourselves that does exist. We begin to lose our spiritual discernment. And like the Pharisees, we fail to recognize God when he's standing right in front of us, and we hear his words as proof that he's on the wrong side. 
And the damage doesn't stop there. Tribalism will prohibit your personal growth and the corporate growth of the church. But worse, it suffocates compassion and evangelism. It makes lost people enemies to be defeated in a culture war rather than potential brothers and sisters in Christ to be loved. And it makes our neighbors enemies to be defeated rather than people to be loved as we love ourselves. Tribalism will distinguish the one thing Jesus said should characterize discipleship, love your neighbor as yourself. Now we hate our neighbors in Jesus' name. Fifth, the Pharisees were proud of their spirituality. They thanked God they weren't like other people. And pride effectively will render us deaf to God's warnings. Because we see God's warnings as intended for others, not ourselves. And that's why pride inevitably ushers in destruction. Number six, the Pharisees substituted Jewish nationalism for God's all-people kingdom. Now, given our sin-damaged nature and its accompanying insecurities, mankind has always suffered for the temptation to assume that God prefers our people, our ethnicity, our nation-state over all others. That temptation is always with us. Everyone wants to believe they're on the side of the angels. And one way we can succumb to that ancient temptation is what is called nationalism, the belief that loyalty to our particular nation-state takes priority over all other loyalties and that those of other nations or ethnicities constitute a threat. Now, the Pharisees had fully embraced nationalism. They assumed God loved the Jewish people above all others and that his foremost concerns were the prosperity of Israel and the destruction of the enemy, those Gentile dogs. They wanted victory in a culture war, and that's one reason why they hated Jesus. Because when he initiated his ministry, he did so in hated Galilee of the Gentiles, not Jerusalem. In his teaching, he used a hated Samaritan as an example of righteousness. At one point, he said of a Gentile person, I've never found faith like that in Israel. And he indicated that the kingdom God wanted to establish was going to be in every tribe, every nation, every tongue, every ethnicity kingdom. And they weren't buying it. You see, it's not, it, it's not hard to understand why the Pharisees didn't call for Jesus' death. It's hard to understand why they didn't call for it sooner. Seventh, the Pharisees substituted easy devotion for the harder aspects of faith. They tithed their spices. They made sure God got a tenth of their oregano. While they totally blew off and ignored justice and mercy, they embraced things that required little of them. 
and they shunned those things that demand much of us. And for that reason, they never learned that the things that demand much of you are the same things that offer much to you. They trivialized love, and they loved trivia. I grew up with that kind of Phariseeism here in western Pennsylvania. I heard endless sermons on how coffee drinking was of the devil. My, how that's changed. If you went to the movies, oh, well, if Jesus came while you were in a theater, you'd be left, you know. Meanwhile, my church was totally complacent about things like Jim Crow and segregation and all kinds of injustices. Oh, but we didn't, we didn't drink coffee. We didn't go to movies. See, it was just Phariseeism. There's nothing new under the sun. Eighth, the Pharisees were unwilling to accept truth from those they saw as outsiders. They didn't want to learn from anybody but one of their own. And Jesus was an outsider. Came from the wrong side of the tracks. He lacked credentials. How could he possibly teach them? Once you accept the model of only receiving truth through people like yourself, you will cut yourself off from much of what God wants to teach you. That's one reason why diverse communities of faith are vital. They serve as deterrence to the leaven of the Pharisees. Nothing is worse for your growth in grace than to be a part of a fellowship that is not, nothing more than an echo chamber of sameness. Finally, told you it wouldn't take too long. The Pharisees were more concerned about preserving their traditions than blessing people. They shunned the commands to love their neighbors. They hated the command to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And they detested the suggestion they should even love their enemies. And they hated Jesus for suggesting those things. And their leaven is still with us. We have come to the place in the United States where if a pastor calls his church to obey Scripture, love their neighbors, love their enemies, do justice, he runs the risk of being vilified, judged, resisted, and run out of his church listening to the accusation that he's a leftist, a socialist, or a Marxist. I'm not making that up. I have heard from countless Alliance pastors. I have talked to numerous Alliance pastors who simply because they use the word justice, something God tells us to do, simply because they say love the people who disagree with us, the people either leave the church or go to the district superintendent and ask the pastor to be removed. You can't make up this kind of insanity. And this passes for devotion to God. And what many of these people forget is the Pharisees never accused Jesus of being too conservative. They always accused them of being too liberal. Chew on that.
The greatest resistance Jesus encountered didn't come from those considered notorious sinners. It came from those considered notable saints. The plots to have Jesus killed weren't instigated by those unfamiliar with the Bible. They were instigated by those most familiar with the Bible. To understand Jesus' warning, beware the leaven of the Pharisees, is to recognize this. The greatest threat to God's kingdom isn't the secular culture around us, but the sin within us. It's not the exaggerated threat of Marxism in the world, but the unrecognized Phariseeism within much of the professing church. It's not hollow wood, it's hollow faith. It's not liberal hordes, but religious pretenders. It's not the clearly announced enemies of faith, but the self-declared friends of faith. Because these oppose God's work in God's name. And the kind of faith they hold up as America's only hope is, in fact, the kind of faith that will ensure its increasing erosion and theirs. I listen. I read social media. I find professing Jesus followers violating virtually every commandment of Scripture. And virtually everything Jesus said under the guise of preserving our freedoms. The irony, preserving our freedoms while they sell their souls to spiritual bondage. You wouldn't believe, listening to the average American church, that Jesus said, this is how people will know, and, and here's what it all boils down to. Love God with everything in you, and then love your neighbor as yourself. Oh, but God... He's a Democrat. Oh, God, he's a Republican. Oh, God, he's a Marxist. Oh, God, he's a Trumper. Oh, my Lord. I'm beginning to understand why God once said through the prophet, I am so tired of your multiplied assemblies. I am so tired of your worship services. I am so tired of the noise you're making. because it's just the leaven of the Pharisees. One of the great ironies, and it's being repeated today, is that the Pharisees who were so obsessed with guarding against the threat of liberalism at the front door failed to recognize Satan was going in and out of the back door of their faith, emptying it of all its God-intended content. They ended up protecting an empty house. And they failed to grasp this awful reality. And I close with this. Evil is most dangerous when it comes quoting Scripture. You say, Pastor, but there are things out there. Yeah, but here's the thing. The things that are outside, greater is he who is in us than anything out there. But if you allow evil on your inside... That short circuits the greatness of the one who is in you. Amen. Huh? 
Liberals are potential Jesus followers. Sometimes those liberals sound more like Jesus than a lot of conservatives. The church was not meant to be an outpost of self-righteous hatred. It was intended to be a place where the most unlovable are loved in Jesus' name. And if we don't get that right, then we should just close up and go home and quit pretending we're God's people. Quit pretending we're doing God's work. It's a hard message. I really didn't want to preach this one. I wanted to do something fun so that you'd still like me. But, but the Lord burnt this one on my heart and said it, it needs to be preached. It really does. I grieve the American church is just destroying itself from the inside. We don't need liberals to destroy us. We're doing a fine job without ourselves. Let's recapture biblical faith. Let's be known for the way we love people. Oh, but they might think we're affirming their lifestyle. (laughs) There'd be plenty of time to show them that's not what you're doing. But boy, it's hard to lead people to Jesus when all you convince them of is that you hate them. And Jesus said, go, make disciples of all people. No, Lord, we've got to win the culture wars. The Lord released me from pastoring, but I told somebody he didn't release me from my prophetic gifting. That burns as bright as it ever did. I just got to find some outlets. And tough for you, you ended up being the outlet tonight. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, your warnings are loving warnings. Like a parent saying to a child, don't touch that stove. Or to a teenager, don't try that drug. Lord, you warned us about the leaven of the Pharisees. Now help us to take that warning seriously. And when all around us, Christians are losing their minds, help us to shine like stars in the night for the glory of God and for the sake of the lost. In Jesus' name, amen.